with just a, a quick glance before we read the text, you can see that the next uh, two sections in James begin uh, quite similarly. In verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say... And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich. Uh, so the letter is taking uh, a slight shift in, in rhetoric, and these next two sections function like uh, twin rebukes to arrogant rich people in particular. Uh, the rebukes are so strong that some have debated whether James even has Christians in mind in these two sections, but the contents of this entire letter suggests that, that both kinds of rich people are present in their gatherings, Christian and non-Christian. You just have to discern which rich people uh, are being addressed more directly in each context. And even where one or the other is being addressed directly, the others are just as well being addressed indirectly. Okay, so for example, um, James will rebuke in particular the non-Christian rich people in chapter 5, verse 3, for example, your, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He's speaking of judgment but that still applies indirectly to the Christian by warning us, you best not put your trust in riches and in unrighteous wealth. In today's passage, James addresses arrogant rich people in general who live in pride by ignoring God for selfish ambitions. The problem that James is addressing is prideful planning and living that ignores God for selfish ambitions. And let's read now how God inspired James to address this problem, beginning in verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So again, the problem that James addresses is prideful planning that ignores God for selfish ambitions. I need to be clear about this up front so that we understand exactly what he's rebuking and what he's not rebuking. Because just by reading the first line of this passage, you might walk away thinking, you know, it's wrong to make plans. It's wrong to, to, have, to do business. It's wrong to make a profit. But we know he can't be saying that because all those things appear elsewhere in Scripture as good in and of themselves. Proverbs 21.5, for example, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Planning 
in and of itself isn't bad. Or take the woman who fears the Lord in Proverbs 31. She makes linen garments and she sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. So doing business isn't wrong in and of itself. It's also not wrong to make a profit. Ephesians 4.29 says that we must do honest work with our own hands so that we might have something. So that we might have something to share with anyone in need. So there's certainly a point to the making of money, to share with anyone in need, but, but making the money in and of itself isn't evil. If that's what the Bible says elsewhere, then what's so evil about the attitude expressed here? Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What's so evil is that these rich people are making all their life plans quite apart from any consideration of God and their lives in relation to Him and His purposes. They're making all of their life plans quite apart from any consideration of God and their lives in relation to Him and His purposes. They're very self-confident in their plans and they lack a Godward dependence. They're aiming to make money, but quite apart from a Godward focus and use. It's essentially prideful planning and living that ignores God for selfish ambitions. Now, James will address that problem from at least four angles in the rest of our passage. I'm just giving you kind of a basic summary of what's going on up front. But these four angles on this, on this problem of prideful planning and living, they also reveal how to correct the problem. They give us gospel solutions to prideful planning and living. So let's learn how to correct prideful planning and living from these four uh, interconnected angles that, that James will bring out. So first of all, we must remember the brevity of our lives. We must remember the, the brevity of our lives. The Bible frequently reminds us of the brevity of life. Uh, jo- Job 9.25 He says, My days are swifter than a runner. Uh, Psalm 144, verse 4 Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. 1 Peter 1.24 All men are like grass. The grass withers and the, and the flower falls. What follows from that teaching a lot of times is that it's rather prideful to pretend otherwise. Uh, it's rather prideful to live your life if it's going to last forever, as if every day will just keep being like this day, and that what's important is earthly gain in the here and the now. It's prideful to live as if, you're, as, as if you, you determine your days instead of acknowledging that the days you have left are in God's hands. In contrast, the humble person is one that knows his days are numbered by God, and so he lives every one of them for what's eternally valuable, according to God. James is picking up this same teaching and applying it to these rich people who are living without a view of the brevity of their lives. He says in verse 14, 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So in all their planning and business endeavors, they've forgotten the brevity of their lives. He actually has said the same thing already in chapter 1, verse 10, where he talks about uh, like a flower of the grass, the rich man will pass away. He will pass away in the midst of his pursuits. James is saying this is reality. The rich like to boast in their millions of dollars and how many skyscrapers they have in New York. But they'll be gone soon enough. If this life is transitory, if our earthly possessions are fleeting, then our ultimate treasure must be found in Jesus and in His unshakable, everlasting kingdom. So we have to let this sink in. Our days are numbered. Every day that we're alive is a gift from God. In comparison to His everlasting kingdom, our lives are but a breath. And so this presses upon us, what are we doing with our breath? What are we doing with this vapor? Prideful living ignores that reality. It it believes itself invincible in order to keep clinging to the present all too tightly. But those walking in humility recognize how fragile we are, how fleeting our days really are, and how much every moment must be sent for Christ's sake. It's kind of like the parable that Jesus told Uh, In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, in Luke 12, verse 15, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Who is the one that God says fool to? It's it's the one who spends his days living for himself without thought that God could take him at any moment. Without the thought of this night, your soul will be required of you. The missionary C.T. Studd wrote a poem titled Only One Life, and in it he says, Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Does the brevity of your life shape and determine your investments? I'm not just talking about financial investments, I'm talking about any investment. Does it inform how you talk about your plans with others and, and even shape what you plan for and what you want your life to be about and your children's lives to be about and your church's life to be about? You see, the brevity of our life, it confronts the sinful mindset that presumes, hey, God's going to give me still more days. I'm just going to live this one for myself and this one for myself and this one for myself. He'll, he'll give me more. The truth is that He has limited our days. They all belong to Him. He gives life and He takes away life. And so... The point is, spend them all for Him. A second angle James takes on this problem, he says, in, in our planning and living, we, we must acknowledge God's sovereign orchestration of all things. We must acknowledge God's sovereign orchestration of all things. Again, the Bible is replete with passages about God's meticulous Governance of all things. Uh, Proverbs 19.21 even uh, addresses God's sovereignty in relation to our planning. It says, Many are the, are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We should be aware of God's sovereign purposes in our planning and living. James writes in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. A couple of clarifications are necessary here because um, this, this kind of language, if the Lord wills, it's, it's found in other world religions just as well. I mean, pagans, will, polytheists will say, if the gods will... Um, Muslims will say, insha'Allah, um, if, if, if Allah permits. But there are some significant differences here. Uh, one difference is the God James has in mind. He says, if the Lord wills, and if you just turn back in this letter... Um, he applies that title, the Lord, to both God the Father and to Jesus Christ, His Son. So he's not just speaking of God in general terms, but speaking of the Lord in triune terms. One God in three persons. Some, some of our missionaries will do the same thing when they're ministering to, to Muslims. They, they change the language to distinguish between the God of Islam and the God and Father of Jesus Christ. So, for example, in Central Asia, they might say, instead of, Insha'Allah, Ayer Tanri Isin Verisi. This is a way that they will show a major distinction between them. Um, another difference here is that for most other religions in the world, a slogan like, 
if God wills, is very passive and fatalistic. It amounts to, to just going about life without a personal relationship with the God or gods. And whatever that God or those gods determine, so be it. Whatever will be, will be. By contrast, James has already explained how personal our relationship with God can be. Through Christ, God has pursued us in grace. Through Jesus Christ, He becomes our Father. He brings things into our lives as a Father. Even the trials that enter our lives come from our Father's hands. They may even frustrate our plans, but they are always for good purposes, to make us more like His Son, for example. We saw this in chapter 1. Or to put our values in the right place. This is chapter 1, verse 12, that crown of life that we ought to be pursuing. Our Father also relates to us through prayer. When we need wisdom for those circumstances that change unexpectedly. Chapter 1, verse 5, we can cry out to Him for wisdom. So this is not passive This is prayerful, and it's not fatalistic. It is fatherly. So with those two clarifications in mind, James is encouraging us into a kind of of planning and living that acknowledges that all things are in the hands of our loving Father. He's saying, sure, plan out your days, that's fine, but not in such a way that when the Lord makes it otherwise, you're not getting frustrated and clinging to your plans and raising a fist at the Lord for frustrating them. Again, mere planning is not the issue here. Planning without holding your Heavenly Father's hand is the issue. Paul would sometimes include language like this in his letters. Uh, you know, he would make plans to come and visit churches. He, he desired to see people face to face uh, but in, in his planning, he would say things like this. Romans 1.9 For God is my witness, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Somehow. By God's will. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, we find the exact same phrase that James uses here. But I will come to you soon, he says. If the Lord wills. So God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we don't plan, but it does mean that we acknowledge His sovereign rule in all of our plans. Okay, which means that our confidence cannot lie in our plans and in our jobs and in our economy. Our confidence must be in the Lord Himself. His plans will succeed. His plans will bring all things into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and not our own. So, if He chooses to let your car break down, or if He chooses to permit an illness, or if He chooses to take life, or to give life, or if He chooses to dissolve your job position, or if He chooses not to approve your visa into a certain country, or if He causes the stock market to crash, we must humbly acknowledge and submit to His sovereignty over it. 
And part of the difficulty with acknowledging this, though, is in, in our planning and living, is that you know, we often doubt His goodness and His wisdom. We're afraid to say, if the Lord wills, because we know it might mean more hurt is coming. We might suffer more, and that can't be good for us. But praise the Lord that this kind of teaching comes within the framework of God's redemptive story through Jesus Christ. It comes within the framework of the gospel of the cross, which tells us a better story of our God. He is loving, so loving that He gave up His only Son for us. And for all of those who are united to Jesus, He is really working all things together for our good. His sovereign orchestration of all things in the universe, they will be for our growing in Christ's likeness. And they will be for our ultimate satisfaction with God's forever glory in His forever kingdom. And when those things are in our sights, when, 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 when we look at the circumstances around us which are oftentimes painful and we see this is not outside my Father of Love's hands then we can say wholeheartedly in our planning, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He is wise. He is good. He, is lo- he has loved me in Christ. I don't know everything, but He does. It's all right. I also wonder what kind of gospel conversations might spring up in your workplace if you just happen to throw that phrase on the table in the middle of business planning. You know, your boss is up there. We're going to make this much profit. We're going to invest here. Things are going to roll out like this in 2017. By this, we'll have this many millions. You just throw out, yeah, if the Lord wills. Just saying, but what might happen? I imagine for some, it will be a shot to their pride. But it might provide opportunity Maybe you don't do it in the meeting. Maybe you do it at lunch. If the Lord wills and see what comes of it. A third angle James takes here. We must live for God's glory, not for self-glory. We must live for God's glory, not self-glory. Verse 16 says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Literally, it's uh, in your arrogances, plural. So the, the idea being that, you know, their, their godless day-to-day planning, it, it's permeating all of their life. They're okay with it. They boast in it. They love planning without God in mind. They, they love making money without a Godward focus. They have, they have arrogances permeating their life. You boast in them. James concludes all such boasting is evil. What, what were the rich people supposed to boast in? Back in chapter 1, verse 
verse 10. Do you remember? Where were they to find their exceeding joy? It says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. And we look, when we looked at that, we saw that that, uh, that that meant the rich are to boast in Christ. The humiliation that they have in union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 8-9 tells us about Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, in order that by His poverty you might become rich. This is what our Lord Jesus is like. The richest person in the universe made himself lowly. He humbled himself to to make others rich with his life. And the New Testament teaches that if we're wealthy, it's not wrong to be wealthy, but that wealth needs to reflect how Christ has saved us, the way we use that wealth. So riches, they give us the opportunity to give and give and give away so as to reflect the way Jesus has saved us. When the rich became poor. So we must boast in Christ and His humiliation for us. Galatians 6.14 says, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So that rich, pride-filled world that's seeking to live its best life now and build up treasures here and now, that world was crucified to us and we to it through our union with Christ. And therefore, our boast should be in Him. When we boast in anything else except Christ and the glory God receives through our planning and living for Christ, we end up living for self-glory. We end up filling our lives with all these kinds of arrogances. And living for self-glory is evil. The gospel points to a better and more satisfying way. For the rich, it is a life that forsakes godless planning and living that makes much of us. We forsake that for Godward planning and living that makes much of God. The fourth and last angle James takes. We must therefore aim to do the Lord's revealed will in all our planning and living. We must therefore aim to do the Lord's revealed will in all our planning and living. Many people miss that James is drawing a conclusion in verse 17. Okay, the ESV has the word so at the beginning of verse 17. It could also be translated therefore. Therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So everything we've talked to to this point has been driving at verse 17. Therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Okay, quick history lesson. 
church history has often made the distinction between sins of commission and sins of omission. Okay, sins of commission are when we do what God says not to do. God says you shall not lie, and somebody lies. That will be a sin of commission. And lots of Christians live as if the goal of their Christian life is just not doing bad stuff. Not lying, not committing adultery, not stealing. Now that's certainly part of it. But James is also teaching that there are things called sins of omission. That's when we neglect to do what God has said to do. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, show hospitality to one another. These are very positive things. He says, bear one another's burdens. Not to do those things is also sin. Okay? The Christian life is not just avoiding what God forbids, but doing what God commands. And that's really crucial when it comes to our planning and living. If we are planning our lives such that we do not do the very things that God has asked us to do, then James is calling us out in our sin and in our priorities, and in our planning. Let me step back for a minute. What, what have we basically learned so far? Life is short. God's purpose rules. His glory, not mine. Life is short. God's purpose rules. His glory, not mine. The conclusion of those three points is this. My planning and my living must revolve around what He has told me to do explicitly in Scripture. Scripture is God's revealed will to us. Now, it's not going to tell you where to live and make money necessarily. But it will certainly tell us how to live and what to live for, where we are, and what that looks like with the people he places in our lives, wherever we are. In other words, it's just plain arrogant just to do whatever we want and make our own plans and eventually, you know, just tack a slogan on the end, if the Lord wills. The Lord works out his purposes through his people doing what he says. And there is a bigger picture here in this letter. If you... Go back through, read James when you get home, and you put the story together about what the rich and the poor are doing. Think with me what's going on in this church, where we've been, and you see why James rebukes him. Okay, the rich, chapter 2, the rich are looking down on the poor. Remember this? You sit at my feet. You sit on the floor. You get to the side. I'm going to sit with my rich buddies. In church. They're looking down on the poor. They're pushing the poor to the side so they can mingle with their rich buddies. 
And the poor people, according to chapter 2, verse 15, they clearly have needs. They are poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And the rich people, the picture we're getting now, the rich people with the poor sitting at their feet are now talking and scheming about what they're going to do a year from now and how much profit they're going to make. You sit over there. We've got important trade to discuss. What's going on here? God's providential will has put a bunch of poor people with them in the church. And they're ignoring God's revealed will to do whatever they want. Their focus is on loving their prophet, not loving on the poor that are now sitting at their feet. They're kind of like the priest and the Levite that go on the other side of the road while a man's laying half dead. James has now revealed to them the right thing to do. The right thing to do is for them to love their neighbor as themselves. And again, nothing inherently wrong with the business planning per se, but there's a whole lot wrong if you want the money while overlooking your brother that needs shoes and food. There's a whole lot wrong if you want the comfort of financial independence while your sister is wondering where her children are going to get clothes for this school year. We cannot ignore God's clear will in Scripture to pursue our selfish ambitions. So what's the solution here? The solution is making sure that we subject all of our planning and living to the revealed will of God in Scripture. This book becomes the grid by which you view your family budget and our church budget. So let's take our job and our money, for example. Okay, this teaching means that we cannot view our jobs as just a way to make the money we need to buy whatever we want. As one writer put it, we cannot imagine God as aloof from mundane cares of money matters. We cannot make financial decisions without consulting Christ for guidance. You see, America teaches us that financial security means more independence. But while you might be independently wealthy, this book is teaching us we're not independent from Christ. He is Lord, and we belong to Him. He owns us, and that means that all that we are and all that we have must serve Him and His purposes. Isn't this right? Life is short. God's purpose rules. His glory, not mine, means that not only is my job in His hands, but so is my wallet. Verse 17 forces us to ask, how should I plan to use my money for His sake? And then I go to the Bible. And it teaches me things like, okay, I'm going to, 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to be content with food and clothing. 1 Timothy 5, 8, I need to take care of my family members. Romans 12, 13, I need to show hospitality to my brothers and sisters. It's part of the reason why I have money. I need to share with those who are in need and with those who teach the Word. 
need to help advance the gospel among all peoples, and need to care for orphans and widows, and, and so on. And then we plan our family budget from year to year, or our church budget from year to year. We, we, we take the Scriptures, we lay them over, and we say, all right, how's my family budget fitting the Bible? Not the other way around. How's the Bible going to fit my family budget? No, how's the family budget going to fit the Bible? And we mold that budget to His revealed will. To the best of our abilities. To the best of our abilities. For example, you might not be in a place to share much with those in need. Maybe you're the one in need. And it's the rest of us that need to share with you. So to the best of our abilities, with what we've been given by the Lord, we mold our plans according to Scripture. Or let's talk about retirement for a minute. Okay, a lot of people plan for retirement in ways that reflect the, the arrogant attitudes that we see here in this passage. America says, you know, you've paid your dues now since you're Retired, you can spend the rest of your life in comfort, play, and entertainment. Once you turn 65, we don't want you working anymore. You're not good for this machine of America, so you're free to live the way you want. But if life is short, and God's purpose rules and His glory, not mine, if those things are true, then we will not turn our retirement as a time merely to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Rather, we will take our retirement to the Bible and see what God wants us to do with it. And the answer you will find is not that you get way, way, way better with your nine iron. The answer is spending myself to see the church thriving and His gospel advancing. The answer is so loving your neighbor with the days you have left that your retired non-Christian buddies start asking you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Some of you are already retired, and you set a good example for us. Dale and Julia, Kim and Linda, Mary. You guys are helping us with your examples of leading hospitality and service and ministry to the needy. You retired from your jobs, but you haven't retired from Jesus and His kingdom. Thank you for setting that example before us. Another way to apply this is how you might make plans in light of the commitment that we have made to one another in the, in the life of this church body. The one another's of Scripture, those are very clear of what God wants us to do. But those one another's of Scripture are only possible when we plan our lives to include them. 
It is possible to so pack your life full of the things that you want to do apart from God that you never have time to do the one another's of Scripture. So planning must account for the Lord's will in relation to our time with His people. We can't just determine not to show hospitality or not to serve the church where there's need because our schedule is so full of other stuff. Rather, we must adjust our lives and our schedule to do what God has said. And that takes wisdom. It takes prayerful consideration for each family because we're all in different places with kids, without kids, married, single, retired, whatever. We've got to work through these things and we've got to work through them together. It takes intentional scheduling and so forth. But if the Lord wants it from us, I think He will be very pleased to give us the grace necessary to figure it out. Life is short. God's purpose rules. His glory, not mine will lead us to give our lives wholeheartedly to His revealed will in Scripture. Let me close here as we come to the the Lord's Supper. We cannot and we will not do this on our own. We cannot and we will not do this on our own. Only Jesus can change us and give us the wherewithal to do this. Jesus came into the world as God in the flesh. He became a man like us. He not only refused to do anything wrong, He also did everything right. At every turn, He entrusted Himself to God's sovereign will And even when that will meant suffering, he prayed, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And that made Jesus the perfect sacrifice, get this, for all of our sins of commission and all of our sins of omission. They were all placed on Jesus when he died on the cross. He died to forgive those sins and remove our guilt. And when we believe in Him, when we bank on Him to save us, our debt is canceled. Then God raised Him from the dead to give us newness of life. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, He has made it possible for us to now follow in His footsteps. By His power, we can now live this way. Instead of prideful planning and living that ignores God for selfish ambitions, Jesus enables humble, enables us to live humbly before God. He empowers humble living in His people where the Lord's will determines and shapes all of our ambitions. You see, according to James chapter 1, He has already planted His Word inside of us. He has planted His Word in our hearts. And now we come and we eat to celebrate this finished work of Jesus on our behalf and to look forward to the day when He comes again and makes us wholehearted participants in God's will on earth 
as it is in heaven. Why don't we pray together before we uh, sing and take the supper. Father, I give you thanks for your word again and pray that you would root it deep in our hearts, that it would land on good soil this morning and anything I've said that's taken away from the meaning of this passage, would you uh, correct it and would you deliver us from all of our pride so that we can receive this implanted word with meekness, uh, wanting to do every part of it. In Jesus' name, amen.